Welcome back to the Taproom Exclusive. I am here with Vaughn Stewart at Bookhouse Brewing. We have moved on to the Goja. Is it so? Is it? Did I pronounce it right? There's like thirty <laughs> There's, different ways I've heard it pronounced. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I the most the easiest way that I've seen it kind of explained is uh, Goza, and it's you can kind of think of it as like in a phonetic spelling of like G O E S, like goes, like goes somewhere, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, like a uh, hyphen a h okay so goza goza yeah yeah but I, like, I, it's it's there's you know it's a strange old german word right. so it's there's lots of room for interpretation so I, I we were talking uh, a little bit off air about uh the style i'm it's still the sour category in general is something i'm still getting uh, i'm new to and so i'm still exploring a lot of mm-hmm. um for for people who don't know uh gozas and and sours kind of what what is it and kind of how does it separate from the rest of the sour category? Sure. So uh, traditionally, Goza uh, would have been made in and around uh, Leipzig, Germany, which is northern Germany. Um, there's some kind of uh, confusion of the kind of the etymology revolving around the Goslar River. Um, but uh, the, the, the short version is that it's an old, old, old German style of beer uh, that is sour, uh, slightly salty and has a hint of coriander. That's that's really kind of the quick version. Um, it's also a wheat beer, so it's it's very comparable to uh, like a Berliner Weiss style ale, um, but with that addition of the hint of salinity and the little bit of coriander. Um, really, the spice use and things like that. I mean, that's a very old brewing tradition thing. You see that in wit beer and in all kinds of old old styles uh, that you can really trace back to. Uh, a lot of it was was kind of superstition. It was that spices were used instead of hops, or all sorts of other okay. reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the acidity traditionally comes from uh, a lactobacillus bacteria, okay, um, which is again similar to Berliner Weiss. Um, it's an important distinction because in the cases of a lot of the Belgian sour beers, the traditional lambics and goose and things like that, and Oudbrun. Um, the the acidity would come from a combination of lactobacillus and pediococcus, uh, and as well as in some cases some kind of um, secondary metabolites from Britannomyces. Okay, there's there's an argument to be made that traditional Berliner Weiss has a little bit of Britannomyces character, but it's usually not done nowadays. Um, but in any case, so so it's a distinction in that the the acidity of lactobacillus is very clean. Uh, and sharp and concise. Okay. Um, it, it, it's like a German Pilsner. All the all the edges are very square and even, right? There's no kind of room for sloppiness. Uh, so, um, it's the acidity of yogurt. It's the acidity of sauerkraut. It's mm-hmm. these very you know distinct, clean, lemony kind of things. And so, in any case, um, our interpretation of it. I mean, um, I don't, I really, I make it pretty similarly to how a lot of breweries are making goza nowadays, which is to, uh, you know, make the, make the wort, do the mash, normal kinds of brewing things. And then, um, I send it to my kettle and, uh, just kind of pasteurize it briefly and then send it to a fermenter. And in the fermenter, I add a pure lactobacillus culture. Um, some breweries will leave it in the kettle and just cool it down and put the lactobacillus in there. Um, there's technical reasons about why I don't do it that way, but in any case, it stays in the fermenter for about 48 hours um, and fully acidifies, and then I send it back to the kettle and boil it fully. Okay. And, and 
So that does a couple things. One, it, it makes it into a, a, just a more standard brewing process thing. It also fixes the acidity at a certain point and kills the lactobacillus bacteria. Okay. And then we clean the fermenter that it was in and send it back in there um, and ferment normally, just like any other beer. Uh, and so the result you get is, again, a pretty predictable uh, uh, acidity that's at a fixed point. Um, it's microbiologically stable because it's just traditional yeast that's in there. Um, so there's real no, not as, I mean, there's always some, something of a risk, but there's a very low risk of, uh, unintentional infection or mm-hmm. things like that. That it seems like it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a style that you really have to be on your game about with, yeah. sa- with sours mm-hmm. overall. I mean, yeah, with any beer, but it seems like the, the technical aspects behind it are pretty you got to be pretty pinpoint yeah it's a it's definitely a little bit more involved um i think uh there are there are people who definitely make them in a much more freewheeling kind of farmhouse brewing way um and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that i i'm not you know trying to throw shade on that but that's just it's the method that works for me yeah um i like that it produces pretty predictable results you know with you kind of look at your set of variables and say you know, if as long as all these conditions are the same, I should be in good shape to make something reliable. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, and it also, I mean, it avoids because we use a pure isolated lactobacillus culture. Um, it avoids off flavors like uh, Band Aid and uh, Parmesan cheese and feet and yeah. stuff like that that are not, that's always, not very good. That's always <laughs> yeah. I, that was always one of the when you said Band Aid, I've I've heard that like people talk about that term used mm-hmm. to, to describe all flavors and everything. It just automatically just makes me, ugh. yeah, uh, that is just, uh, what, but what do you, in your opinion, uh, the sours kind of, kind of came up. They, it didn't come out of nowhere. They've been slowly building for a while, but mm-hmm. where do you see this kind of resurgence of popularity in them? Is it just everything cyclical? Um, you know, it's hard to say. And I think it depends kind of on what you, what data you look at and what, um, how you kind of categorize different types of sour beer. Um, I think that the, the, the percentage of sales that sour beers make up is still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. It's definitely increasing. It's definitely growing. Um, but I think it still does just kind of pose, uh, a challenge to just a lot of beer drinkers. And I think that's okay. I think the, a lot of where the ground to be made in, in uh, the growth of sour beer is in bringing in wine drinkers and cider drinkers and people who are used to really a fairly decent bit of acidity because, you know, a lot of wines are, are quite a bit more acidic than mm-hmm. beer. Um, uh, and so they can kind of uh, bridge that gap, especially, you know, the more traditional aged uh, sour ales of Belgium. Um, the I think a lot of the resurgence, part of it is that Brewers finally got comfortable with the idea of making sour beer uh, on an American schedule, um, <laughs> which is to say quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there there are, there are problems, there are fits and starts, and and there's growth to be figured out and things like that. But I think uh, I think that's part of it is is that brewers and and accordingly the people they sell the beer to uh, have kind of gotten used to. Um, and interested in those different production techniques because really a, a lot of, you know, so what I'm in, in more detail, kind of what I'm talking about with, with the method there is, you know, for me to make a batch of Goza, it's about a 
10, maybe 12 day turnaround, okay. which is pretty fast. Yeah. Um, where traditionally a, a Belgian style sour beer, uh, your Lambics, your Goose, your Ode Brune, uh, Flanders Red, those are one to three years or more, wow. you know, of time. Um, and a lot of that's tradition and choice and things like that. But it it's the way that, that those breweries and those brewers have made beers for hundreds of years, you know, so, excuse me. So they, they don't have a lot of incentive to really change that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think that there's, it's an evolving segment. Um, it's still, again, it's still pretty small. Um, in terms of where the interest comes from, I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things in, in craft beer. I think you can trace it to, uh, an interest in, uh, uh, local agriculture, you know, the kind of locavore movement thing, um, anything in that grouping of, of, you know, foodie culture, um, uh, slow food, these kinds of things that, you know, uh, the, the values of, of different generations and of people who are discovering things and trying new things, um, there, I don't know. There's a, just a combination of a lot of things I think that have influenced that rise. Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a really cool thing to see. Uh, it's something different uh, for people to try and, you know, expand your palate. Don't, mm-hmm. You know, don't be yeah. afraid to to try something new and and just keep finding it because you, you know, I tell this mm-hmm. with people who don't like IPAs. Like maybe you don't like a certain hop, right? You know, find something that you like. You can right. find it, and I have gotten people who swore off ipas into that and then you know i've turned people who don't like sours into sours yeah i i think that's an actually a good point to mention though too is um definitely i think be willing to try it but the the flip side of that i would add is be willing to say to the brewer the bartender whatever i don't like this because Mm -hmm. and b i mean it's it's a tough ask because you know um you again, you want to meet people where they are, and you don't want to place all the burden on them to communicate. You know, uh, this is bad because. But like, if you taste a beer and it, for instance, you know, tastes like dirty gym socks or something right. like that, that's not supposed to be that way. Right. It's okay to speak and you up need and to say, know that. "Yeah," and it's okay to speak up and say, "This is not good." And yeah, exactly. When when that feedback loop is robust, coming from the the you know person drinking it to the brewer to the distributor, whatever. Um, that's where the growth is going to happen because yeah. that's where the bad beer, the bad batches, the bad techniques are going to be ironed out, right. you know, and where the mar- essentially in, in economic terms, the market will push out the bad. Right. right. But if, if, and I know it's a big ask and I'm not saying everyone has to, you know, everyone has to do it all the time right. and be super critical beer judges, but like bad beer is bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so pass that along. Cause brewers want to know when yeah. you have a bad beer. Yeah. They don't, you don't want your name out there with, associated with a bad beer. Right. You know, right. It, it doesn't make sense. Right. Uh, so going into yours a little bit, you guys, you, you have the, it's kind of, is it like a base now? You, you mentioned you were kind of doing like a, like oh, a, yeah. a one-off or something like a variant, uh, go on a little bit about what, what that is and how it differs from, from the base. Yeah. I mean, so, um, basically this week um i have uh i have a batch of a key lime version of the goza the three out of five goza uh and uh it it came about from just a couple times kind of experimenting with one-off kegs of you know take take a keg of the base goza and add uh you know a whole bunch of like mango puree or something like that and just kind of little experiments like that those kegs did pretty well um and i think fruit and acidity are natural companions um and, and it was really just kind of i was 
browsing ingredients and, and seeing what was available. And I found uh, a good source for key lime juice, uh, puree, whatever you want to call it. And um, uh, just thought that, you know, there's a natural kind of pairing there of the key lime and the goza. So, yeah, um, so we're doing a key lime version of the three out of five goza. Um, the one tricky thing there is the, um, the I, I put 88 pounds of key lime juice puree into um about 100 gallons of base goza and it it uh it really brought the ph down quite a lot <laughs> normally we're shooting for like a, a 3.2 to 3.4 ph at okay. serving um this batch was down at uh, 2.7 oh wow and anyone who knows you know ph is it's a logarithmic scale so that's quite acidic so in any case um i had intended to have this batch be half key lime and half just traditional goza but I'm actually going to be blending those together um, to kind of get to a happy gr- uh, middle ground. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah. So so in any case, it'll it's still it's very good, and it's like you can really taste that just like huge key lime, yeah. distinct kind of blast of flavor. So yeah, it's pretty. Cool. I, I like uh, I like key lime. I like mm-hmm. the flavor, and I think uh, in that like you were saying that it'll play well the the sit the citrus of it. Mm-hmm. The acidity and will just play very well with, with the style. Yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be fun. And that's that's kind of the like you were saying with, you know, doing different. Like how how did the mango vary from from the key lime? Like was, do how, how does those, kind of differentiate in in using the same base with it? Um, I you know I like the man- mango especially. It that was just kind of one example I've done. Uh, like. Uh, passion fruit and caruba and some other wow some other funky fruits but um i like the mango because it it really kind of with the salinity in there it pushes in the direction of like a mango lassi uh you know an indian uh, uh drink that um has a little bit of salt in there and it's very cooling and refreshing yeah they're very compatible flavors um but uh yeah it it it's really it's like anything in brewing, I guess. It's kind of, you kind of experiment and you try different things. And when you kind of land on something good, you just run with it, yeah. you know, and hope that people feel the same way. Well, that's a fun series to kind of focus on. It's yeah. just doing different different fruits in the same beer and seeing how it changes that, that same beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I, at the same time, though, I, I'll be quick to say that, like, I, I don't think that... I, I like doing the variations, but I also personally have a lot of faith just in a traditional Leipziger Goza. Right. I think it, it can stand on its own without the fruit. Um, but it is fun to do the variations. Too. I yeah, don't know. Just I can kind of have it both ways. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But that's what being the brewer is all about. Right. You get, you do get to get it both ways. Yeah. So, you know, you can have it however you want. You're, yeah. you're, you're making it. Uh, anything else about the, the style or the, or your specifically that you want to get out um, pairing if you wanted to eat with it or anything? Oh yeah, I mean it's um, it's definitely a pretty food friendly beer. Um, the I'm trying to think of, I mean generally with a style like that, you look at um, chicken, fish, um, lobster is great with it. Uh, it works well with uh, cream based sauces as well, um, where it really kind of cuts through the the richness of the sauce. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, goat cheese. Um, they're complementary and kind of create an enhancing yeah element. But uh, yeah, that's been fun to do too. Is uh, beer and cheese mm-hmm. com- comboing those, seeing what, what what works well with what. Um, Vaughn, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, tune in next week for another episode here at Bookhouse.